Boy, the, the change of the slides gets the crowd good morning. The crowd quiets right down with the changing of the slides. So you should be up here, Deb. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Dr. Boyle. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, April 20th, 2016. Uh, as we move through the month, we are getting closer and looking forward to visits from Dr. Spack next week. But also, Orr's neighbor, as Orr's in the room, will be our first graduating resident Grand Rounds presentation on Wednesday, May 4th, and he was concerned that it was too proximate to PAS for there to be any audience, so I will certainly remind us all that we will have good attendance for Dr. Neighbor on Wednesday the 4th, and do your surveys if you hadn't had a chance to. Um, today's Grand Rounds, uh, in terms of us being up to some good, is part of our annual Shield Our Children from Harm conference, which was conducted yesterday, probably here in these rooms, and so I will, I will look to, um, uh, to Deb Pullen. What was our attendance yesterday? Uh, Beautiful. So... Uh, a full house yesterday, and I was apologetic not to be here because we also had site visitors from ACGME yesterday for our residency and fellowship, which um, went well with good feedback immediately uh, on the end. So exciting things going on, but I want to make sure Dr. Sheets has plenty of time to present and have questions. We are thrilled to welcome Dr. Sheets back to the podium because she presented yesterday as part of the conference. She's Professor and Chief of Child Advocacy and Protection at the Medical College of Wisconsin and the Children's Hospital of Wisconsin in, in um, Milwaukee, uh, a, a graduate of the University of Kansas, Phi Beta Kappa uh, undergrad, as well as AOA for Alpha Omega Alpha for the medical school at the University of Kansas. Um, she did her first year internship in, at Kansas City University, KU Medical Center, University of Kansas Medical Center, before finishing training at Duke University. And the fellowship, uh, Robert Wood Johnson General Academic Pediatrics Fellowship at Duke, returned to Kansas City for 17 years leading child abuse efforts at that institution and has been at the medical College of Wisconsin for the past 11 as their director and professor, as mentioned. She's uh, had numerous peer-reviewed publications and well over four to five dozen national and international presentations of this sort. I think most notable on her CV is that she's received uh, two uh, leadership and uh, lifetime achievement awards from the Ray Helfer Society, the, the society, the International Recognition Society for those who are advancing the cause of preventing uh, child abuse and neglect. So both outstanding leadership within the society and the award by the National Alliance of Children's Trust and Prevention Funds in the section of Child Abuse and Neglect of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, uh, so another leading Helfer Award winner. Uh, we've had uh, our own Dr. Wendley Gladstone, who was also an award winner uh, at the podium as well. So without further ado, thank you for joining us, Dr. Sheets. So thank you, Dr. Loud, and it sounds like the mic is working and it's not giving me any feedback. I really, it's quite an honor for me to be here today, and it's a subject that is near and dear to my heart. It's been a research focus of mine, and it has a strong prevention focus, as you'll see. And so with no further ado, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Um, I hopefully will have a little time at the end for questions. Um, I don't have any disclosures uh, or financial interest to um, 
talk about. Uh, the objectives are here, and basically I hope you leave today having a good sense of what sentinel injuries are and why they're important really to everyone, I think, in this room. If you have any contact with infants, I think this is a key message. Um, also some um, greater understanding, perhaps, of uh, the relationship between infant crying and infant distress and, and physical abuse. And then a few suggested potential strategies for prevention. After all, April is Child Abuse and Prevention Awareness Month. So I'm a child abuse pediatrician, board certified child abuse pediatrician. I can't really talk about my topic area without giving you some disturbing scenarios. So I want to encourage you. Uh, this is a hard topic for a lot of people, and I would encourage you to take care of yourself. Um, I think I lead with a case that actually has a photo that might be somewhat disturbing. So uh, and that, that may be my first case here. So you might want to avert your eyes if you don't want to see that. Um, it's an outline first, um, which I'm not going to go through. There's the case. So um, this is Abby's sister. Abby's sister was three years old at the time that mother's boyfriend forced her face down into hot oil and caused these really horrific burns. So there was no difficulty in diagnosis here. Um, and so the, the perpetrator, mom's boyfriend, was uh, removed from the situation. I'll just say it nicely. Um, and the mother had a protective plan in place. She was pregnant with Abby at the time the little baby girl who would be named Abby. Um, and then Abby was born. And Abby, uh, when Abby was born, the Child Protective Services, or Child Welfare, CPS, elected to leave Abby in the home with pretty intensive safety services because this mom needed some parenting support. This mom had some of her own issues clearly had not, not made a good partner selection at least once. Um, and so they were going into the home really quite often. The success story here, even though we have abuse, and that may you may be too caught up on that to hear the success story, but the success story here is that this CPS worker had been attending what, what um, uh, we have in Wisconsin, um, Barbara Knox, who is a child abuse pediatrician in Madison, and I in Milwaukee had years ago, back around 2008, organized the state uh, in what's called the Wisconsin Child Abuse Network. And it's a multidisciplinary way of getting webinars out there, but also online resources. So this CPS worker had heard a talk through WeCan, the network, about sentinel injuries. And so she knew that babies who were not yet cruising shouldn't be bruising. And that's kind of one of your key takeaway uh, points today. She knew that, and when she saw on a home visit what she thought were bruises, she went back and spoke with her supervisor. And this is what she saw on Abby's face, which you can see here and here. And you can see why she might not have been sure. I think just looking at a picture, it could be just some hyperpigmentation or a little rash. Is it a bruise? Is it not? So she spoke with her supervisor. And then it was actually two days later the child was brought into the emergency department. And at that point, uh, multiple bruises were noted. Um, and a skeletal survey was performed, as it should have been. And by the way, a skeletal survey should always, in almost all cases, be a two-part study. 
there's the first part, the first skeletal survey, then it should be repeated about two to three weeks later. And we are vigilant, and some would say even hypervigilant, but we have an almost 100% completion rate of our skeletal surveys as a quality improvement ongoing metric that we track. Anyway, on the initial skeletal survey, she had a corner fracture. It's classic metaphyseal lesion. It's highly correlated with abuse. She also had some healing rib fractures. But what she didn't have is abusive head trauma, or what we used to call shaken baby syndrome. This was a save. This was a baby who I think was going to go on and get killed or more seriously injured, possibly uh, shaken, slammed, or thrown. And instead, she was protected at that point and removed. So this is an important message for really any anybody seeing infants is that before a child is able to cruise, they shouldn't have a bruise. And it's not that they're all from abuse. I'm not saying that. But each one needs to be considered in context of the history and risk factors. And abuse needs to be, if it's not at the top of the differential, it needs to be pretty close. So this was uh, a topic area of, that was of interest to me. And, and you know, I, I think no talk is complete without the iceberg, right? But um, you know, when we see at the hospital a physical abuse injury, we know, at least in the context of the family, there's, there's a high likelihood of family violence. In fact, the co-occurrence is about 50-50. So if I screen a woman, as we do routinely in our clinics, for intimate partner violence, it's about a 50% chance her children are being physically abused if she is being physically abused and vice versa. So these go hand in hand, but I would say along with the family violence or much deeper problems, a lot of other things co-occur. And so mental health issues, substance abuse issues, uh, food insecurity, poverty, the effects of historic trauma, the effects of racism, um, a lot of other things are under the water here that affect the ability of these families to function and function in particular as good parents. And then I would also add that the part above the water isn't just physical abuse injury. These are the kids that are getting kicked out of your daycares. They're getting suspended from daycares for behavior disorder. They're the kids who are no-shows, recurrent no-shows in clinics. They're the truant children. These are families that are touching our systems in a variety of ways. And we as a group, we as a community, aren't necessarily paying attention. So, uh, that message I'll revisit here in a few minutes. I hope all of you are familiar with the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study uh, done by, um, conducted by uh, Dr. Anda and uh, Vince Felitti back in, published in 98. But what, um, what we know is that um, this included all types of family violence. And we know that adverse childhood experiences are key determinant of health and in fact related to cancer, diabetes, heart disease, mental health problems, sexual risk factors, HIV, uh, health risk behaviors, obesity. The list just kind of goes on and on. And so many of the diseases that we are paying for as a society on the back end, much of the attributable risk, if you will, or is from adverse childhood experiences. And if you're interested in learning a bit more about this, I'd encourage you to go to the CDC. They actually have an ACEs website, but then also uh, the CDC has Essentials for Children or Childhood uh, that has some nice um, links to ACEs and trauma-informed care. And then, of course, the Harvard Center uh, on the Developing Child. So what do we know? Uh, sentinel injuries are primarily bruises, but not exclusively. I'll talk about that in a minute. 
But what do we know about uh, children, uh, particularly infants, who, are, who have a bruise? Well, um, we are still working on that. Uh, up until very recently, there were no prospective studies. There's now one published prospective study out of the Cardiff group, um, the Welsh Card Cardiff group, um, that was a prospective study of infants, and it was parents who were um, noting bruises um, out of this prospective study. None of the children, including one who had nine times the normal number of bruises, none of them were reported to child welfare, none of them were screened for other injury. Um, they um, made an assumption that self-selected patients who opted to be in this study wouldn't have abuse. And so this is a, very much a, a flawed study. So I, I put it in here with some hesitation because I don't know that it really informs our practices about how, how much we expect bruising in non-abused infants. There are multiple published studies that all are, are somewhat troubled also by, I mean, this is a really hard thing to study, as you might imagine. But they were um, mainly studies on well infants. And again, some, sometimes they made an attempt to screen out abuse, sometimes they didn't. The best well-known one is the one by Naomi Sugar, who's a child abuse pediatrician who passed a couple years ago. Um, but what she did is she looked at well children coming into a clinic and um, assuming that those were not abused infants, which I don't know that we can assume, 2.2% of those infants had a bruise in the pre-cruising period of time. Um, so we know that bruising in pre-cruising infants, infants who are not yet able to pull to a stand and take a few steps holding on, um, are, is unexpected. And I think that's a very fair and, and probably conservative statement. And that when it occurs, one needs to at least think about abuse and seriously consider making reports and doing additional screening. So those kids, we'll go back to that Kemp study, those kids who only have bruising, and this, um, how worried should we be about abuse? Well, this is, again, it's a somewhat skewed study because it was actually part of, it was a multi-site study of which we were participants in, but it was uh, the extra study done by uh, Dan Lindbergh and many others, but looking um, at, at a different topic, but this was a sub-analysis, a, a, a secondary analysis of those data, and what they found is that in infants who the only concern of abuse was based upon bruising, that half of those infants, when you looked on a skeletal survey and did additional occult injury screening, half of them had other serious injury. So I'll remind you back on that Kemp study, if you don't look, you don't know about it. And I would also urge that the other half in this even if all they had was a bruise, may have had their very first abusive injury as a bruise. So the purpose of doing these additional studies isn't to rule out abuse. It's not like a rule out sepsis workup. It's an additional injury screening. And you can't conclude that no abuse exists if it's negative. We also know that when these early sentinel injuries occur, that if we don't effectively intervene, that the level of violence directed against the infant can escalate. And there are multiple studies that show this. Many of them are case series. But we know that these kids with sentinel injuries will go on and, at least in some cases, be shaken, slammed, thrown, killed, broken, burned, you name it. So 
The focus today is about prevention through early detection, but I'm going to talk a little bit at the end about universal uh, prevention as well, primary prevention. But we all know that child abuse, and you have your own Deb Pullen here in the audience, child abuse takes a horrible toll on the family. And I know there's some critical care colleagues. The, these families, regardless of who inflicted the abuse, these families are devastated. It has financial consequences for the families. It's a crisis. We are also paying as a society, and, and these are very expensive cases that if we can prevent, it's, the, it's a huge turn, return on investment. And depending on which cost analysis you look at, it can be quite large. So I got interested years ago because of a case of, that I had back in Kansas City. I um, knew that some of the moms who I was talking to, once the baby was in the hospital with abusive head trauma or broken you know, fractures or what have you, many of these moms would describe to me that, yes, she had seen a bruise you know, a month prior, and it was just a little bruise. It was just on the baby's cheek. It was gone after a couple of days. And the boyfriend, and it does tend to be a recurring theme, high risk factor, uh, the presence of mom's boyfriend in the home, if you can control for all confounders, increases the chance of fatal child abuse by six times. Just that very factor. Anyway, that mom's boyfriend said that maybe the baby bumped the pacifier. Now, folks. We're all pediatricians, if babies bruise that easily, we would see a lot of bruised babies, and we don't. Um, but these mothers, and I will tell you the medical providers would accept these really implausible, lame uh, explanations. And I think it's because of the mindset of humanity. It's really almost unthinkable that somebody would abuse or hurt an infant. It's also an idea that a bruise is a trivial injury. And so part of the reason I've, I've coined this term sentinel injury is to help not only the medical audience that's here, but also your CPS colleagues and law enforcement daycare providers, and even parents to talk about these trivial minor injuries like bruises and intraoral injuries in pre-cruising infants as something different. These are serious injuries. These are sentinel injuries. And we need to think about them differently and talk about them differently so that we think about them differently. Um, and then I think there's also an inherent bias whenever we're confronted one-on-one -on -one with a, a patient or a family. We make um, heuristic kind of assumptions, I would say, where we um, make an idea, we have an idea that they're a good family or low risk for abuse or they look like us or they're articulate or they have resources, therefore it couldn't be abuse or maybe we've known them. And I think I would give you a word of caution that if you, if you feel yourself falling into that place, put your blinders back on and do protocol-based screening. If you have a bruise and a pre-cruising child, unless you have a very clear and discreet incident um, that could explain a bruise that's over a bony prominence, you probably should be doing the workup and seriously considering reports. So I wondered how often it is that abused infants have previous sentinel injuries. And that's really what got me interested in this. This was actually four sub-studies. They were all retrospective, under looking at infants under 12 months of age, where the child protection team, of which I'm part, uh, was doing a full consult and a full write-up. Um, so all of these cases were uh, initially started with a, a consult to the child protection team. 
And then we were classifying these cases as either we knew they were abuse or high likelihood of them being abuse. These were definitely not abuse or a real low likelihood. And then we have a big gray zone in the middle. And then we, um, we use consecutive case logs to find the cases. We keep case logs uh, so that we wouldn't miss any cases. Um, so there were actually four different sub-studies, and if you wonder, I mean, these were a lot of charts. And I don't, I mean, I'm a child abuse pediatrician. Time, there's no way I could have done this. I actually worked with, um, there were three different medical students who did this as part of a summer research project. And so um, that was actually a lot of fun, and I hope created new soldiers who are now knowledgeable about um, child abuse as they go forward in their careers. Um, so we had these three groups, and um, I, I couldn't ch change the, um, the graphics here, but this middle area, the indeterminate group where we couldn't say for sure, was actually bigger. That overlap was quite large. And we did the chart reviews. We were looking at the, and, and remember, these chart reviews, th these are where we're getting a history from whomever is at the hospital. And so that could be the mom. It could be mom and mom's boyfriend. It could be mom, boyfriend, or father, and grandparents. It's, it's who's at the hospital at that very initial presentation. So we're often talking with the perpetrator. Okay, and that people don't quite realize, but when you're in an inpatient setting, that's pretty common. Uh, and, and occasionally you get a confession by the perpetrator to the medical provider, which is interesting. Um, but anyway, we were getting this information in the chart abstraction, and we were looking for a history, just a history at this point, of in the chart of was a history given uh, that there was a uh, visible, um, likely abusive, I should probably put, um, injury. So like a bruise or an intraoral injury primarily um, that was detectable or seen by, and all of them were seen by a parent or a caregiver because that's where we were getting our information. But some of these were also seen by medical providers. And then um, we would obtain the medical records, and sometimes we were able to verify that indeed it was seen by the medical provider, but not always, because we couldn't get records in some kids. And so as an example, what we're looking for is, I mean, if you have a six-month-old baby here who um, comes into us with a concern of abuse, we do a skeletal survey, there are rib fractures present. We don't consider the rib fractures a sentinel injury, because uh, your average caregiver is not going to know that they're there. But mom tells us that there was a bruise at two months of age. That's a sentinel injury. And so other examples, we had, um, here's one with an abusive um, femur fracture. And mom, and this is what she said to me, is um, the baby had had bruising on both sides of the cheek like someone had grabbed her while feeding her. Now, that's a quotation. Another uh, abuse case, uh, it was an abusive head trauma, which is what AHT is, um, where the mom uh, attributed chest bruises to the father does not know his own strength. And that's uh, something I hear fairly often. Um, and, you know, again, babies, their skin's so compliant. It's really, it's, it's very hard to bruise a baby. And so keep that in mind. So I just wanted to give you that idea, and then I'm going to give you the results. And the results um, were surprising to me only in terms of the number. I was expecting maybe 10% of my um, serious physical abuse cases would have previous sentinel injuries, and it was really quite higher than that. And so what this um, is, it's just uh, this is cumulative percent. 
um, here along this side. And so the dark black line, the solid black line, are, are definite abuse cases. So as they came in, of course, we reached 100%, and the number is 200 there. So we had 100 in each category. And then the solid blue line are um, kids, these were our control, if you will. I, I, maybe comparison group is a better word. But um, these were kids where the child protection team did an evaluation, a full consult, asks very, you know, essentially the same questions, and found that there was no abuse or low, uh, low probability of abuse. So the dotted lines are the sentinel injuries, okay? And the sentinel injuries in our definite abuse case ended up being, if you combine these two groups, the battered infants with the abusive head trauma was, uh, I think, 27.5% of all of our cases. What if we could completely eliminate over a quarter of all of our serious physical abuse cases? And it's probably higher than that, and I'll tell you why here after a few minutes. When we look at the, um, I think the angle is, is hard here. Uh, when we look at the sentinel injuries and the controller comparison group, it was zero. And you think, well, maybe there's circular reasoning going on here. Maybe if they had a sentinel injury, we bumped them up into a definite. We did a secondary analysis, and there were none that were bumped from a low suspicion to a definite abuse because of a sentinel injury. This was truly zero percent. So what's going on here? Well, I think all of us as uh, pediatric providers know that crying is a normal developmental stage, tends to peak around six weeks of age. Um, and when we saw the sentinel injury peak, it was about slightly lagging. And I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, but it was slightly older. It was at uh, two to three months of age. And then if you look at the uh, more serious physical abuse, that escalation of violence, it was uh, between three and six months of age. So um, discouraging to me was the fact that 42% uh, of the sentinel injuries were known to a medical provider. At least by report, we were able to confirm many of these. And of those known to a medical provider, over 40%, um, the, the provider thought about abuse, which was great, but then did the workup and felt that they had ruled out abuse because there were no fractures on a single skeletal survey, which, again, you, you, I think you've heard that's a cognitive error. That's, that's not why you're doing that skeletal survey. It's really just additional injury surveillance. And then um, over 50% just noted it in the, in the record and either made no assessment about it, didn't even think it was important enough to comment about, or thought it was self-inflicted by the baby, or thought it was through normal care and handling. So I think we have a lot of education uh, to do. There is, and I know I forgot to include this in my handout, this was published in Pediatric Clinics of North America readily available. I would be happy to send it to Deb or Dr. Loud or however, but we actually take this page and the next page. This is our workup when we suspect abuse. We've laminated it. We print it two-sided, laminate it, and we actually give it to CPS workers and law enforcement because often out in more remote areas of Wisconsin, we have lots of those, they encounter health care providers who will say it's just a bruise. 
uh, we don't need to do anymore. No, I'm not going to do a skeletal survey. And so at least it gives them something from, I, I don't know how authoritative the source is, but it's clearly marked on the page where it came from. It's dated, a contact number where they can reach me um, so that hopefully the screening will get done. We have seen a lot of, of good things come out of this because then child welfare can be advocates for these kids. So a summary of the Sentinel injury findings is um, about 27.5% of our um, seriously, definitely physically abused infants had a previous history, and it may be higher because remember, these histories are coming from sometimes the perpetrator who might not be completely forthcoming, as you can imagine. Um, and medical providers are aware at least of some of these, a significant number. We also saw a prevention window, from, and that's that lag time between the Sentinel injury and the next uh, uh, episode of abuse where the violence was quite more severe. And that, la that lag time, that prevention window, if you will, was anywhere between one day to seven and a half months. So it is somewhat urgent that we respond to these sentinel injuries when they occur. You don't know what's going on in that home. It may not even be in the home. It may be in the daycare. And I don't I don't think I included my, I have a fatal case that just uh, fairly recently happened where the mom actually took the baby boy's picture at his five-month birthday, and he had just started going to a daycare, and she, she had several pictures on her phone of the sentinel injury. She didn't know it was important. She actually sees her pediatrician two days before this child is killed, and the pediatrician doesn't know about it. It's a faint bruise on the forehead. Mom says it's there. It doesn't show up in the pediatrician's documentation. She didn't know to mention it. And then two days later, this, this baby is shaken, slammed, thrown, and is dead within 24 hours. So this was preventable. This was a daycare case. This was, this was an educated mom, and had she known about this, I assure you, she wouldn't have taken this child back. And she had other indicators, and that's the other reminder to you. You have one tiny piece of the puzzle. Sometimes arming parents with information of, I'm worried about abuse, and they're thinking. They're thinking, they may know that they're in a domestic violent relationship that they haven't told you about. They may have other indications. In this case, her three-year-old little boy didn't want to go to the daycare. And in fact, the reason she doesn't ask the daycare provider about the bruise is because that morning, the, the little boy wouldn't go in. So there's all this drama about getting him into the daycare, and she forgets to ask. So um, anyway, I, I think you get the message. Um, so the significance is, I, I hope I've made that point. Um, so a, a case example, a different case, is the case of Hannah. And this is my transition into the infant distress research that I have not yet published, um, but I hope to. Uh, so this was a three-and-a-half-month-old little girl uh, who was admitted for fever, vomiting, and increasing head size, and she was ultimately diagnosed with abusive head trauma. Uh, when she came in, she had multiple injuries, um, some showing absolute evidence of impact. And this is her 3D reconstruction, no difficulty in a medical audience seeing injuries here. And she had mixed-density subdural 
hemorrhage on her head CT. So um, the diagnosis wasn't difficult. We didn't have an explanation for any of these. But what is horrifying, and this is, I mean, this may be unusual in terms of it being extreme, but this isn't unusual in terms of what these kids and how they're presenting, and that is when you get the chart and you look at all of this, these, this child's records, this child had been, had multiple sentinel injuries. She had first come in, mom had just gone back to work. Common precipitation, in my experience, of abuse. She had just gone back to work and she sees a bruise on the baby's leg, but that's not actually why she brought the baby in. The baby was vomiting that day and the bruise was an incidental finding. So um, the baby was brought in. Um, the uh, abuse uh, was at that point, um, can't remember whether it was that point or the next point. Um, oh, that, that was the facial bruising um, was reported, but it was an ineffective report. In other words, it was just a bruise. The medical provider didn't convey what a bruise uh, means in that age child. In other words, using words like sentinel injury, this is highly correlated with abuse. Uh, this needs further investigation. We're doing additional workup to make sure this baby doesn't have a bleeding disorder. These kinds of ways of communicating are key because you're educating your child welfare law enforcement about it. But anyway, this kid continued to come back and actually got referred to a hematologist to work, be worked up for a bleeding disorder. And uh, I mean, at this point, this child had multiple bruises. She was seen a total of 11 times, though. In addition to the, um, the sentinel injury visits, she was seen additional times for fussy, crying, poor feeding. And so what we were interested in doing is just to look at, go even further upstream from the, from the sentinel injuries and say, is there any way of looking at these kids and saying, are these the kids who are coming in multiple times to our ED, to our urgent care, to our primary care physician offices because of infant distress? So the current paradigm uh, about abuse of infants, as many of you know, is that there's, it's an outcome, obviously, of a failure of interaction between the caregiver and the infant that's often um, precipitated by infant distress that's usually crying. And this is from, it's modified from Ron Barr's um, uh, research. So this is kind of the paradigm we're talking about here where um, infant distress, it's usually crying. Some of them will be hurt, uh, poked, prodded, hit, twisted, somehow bruised, something rammed in the mouth, intraoral injury. Not all of them, though. Uh, but it can escalate, and it can escalate to severe abuse. And this was actually a fatal case of abusive head trauma from Sheboygan, um, where I dealt with multiple defense paid witnesses. I will not call them experts because they were not. Um, but um, this was a case where there was a conviction. Uh, it was the bio fa biologic father uh, who killed this baby. And this baby is pristine, um, doesn't have any injury on him except for one tiny bruise on his eyelid that was there a couple of days before he, this happened to him. Um, so he had a sentinel injury again. He's, he's dead. We did um, salvage. He went to organ donation, which was a huge amount of work. Um, but one of the happy things that came out of this horrible situation. 
So when we were doing this study, it was built pretty much the same as the sentinel injury studies. We um, were looking for signs of infant distress, and we looked beyond crying. We wanted to look at uh, fussiness, sleep problems, feeding, digestive problems, formula switches, um, recurrent complaints with spitting up. We really wanted to ca cast a broad net um, and then look at um, how many of these kids ended up in the abuse group, although this was a retrospective study. So we know that crying is the trigger in the majority of cases, and I would say we know that from three different things. One is the timing of the crying and the abuse, and I've alluded to that already. Parental reports um, and their response to crying, which has been researched, and then some confession studies. I'm going to spend just a moment talking about this because I think it's important. So I've shown you the graph of when various things peak. Um, t uh, this Estonian study is kind of interesting. They have a different healthcare system, obviously, there. Uh, but 88.5% of the abusive head trauma cases had sought care for excessive crying before the baby went on and was shaken or slammed. That's kind of interesting. So why do you see this lag time between the crying the sentinel injuries than the more serious abuse. And so this lag time, we don't know, but potential explanations are there. One is that it, people expect a baby to cry, but when it's been going on uh, a week or two weeks or three weeks, it kind of, it, it, you, you reach a point, at least some people, particularly those with risk factors, where maybe the tolerance is exceeded. Sometimes it's mom going back to work. Uh, so it's a, it's a good time to have a, a good discussion with parents when somebody's going to go back to work about how to soothe the baby and what to do if you start feeling yourself negative or frustrated or feeling inadequate. Fathers have expressed to us that they feel inadequate um, and that the, pa the baby doesn't like them. They will use words like that if you ask them how they were feeling. Um, and um, so it's a good time to do teaching. We don't know for sure if that works. We also know that abuse can happen and then doesn't get detected. We know that sentinel injuries, many of those didn't even come into medical care. We also know that about a third of abusive head trauma cases when they first occur don't get picked up. Um, and then we also know that abusive head trauma, it can be repetitive. It's not just the first time it happens that they come in. And in fact, a very, I think I have, um, I'll get to the confession study in a moment. It's very chilling. Um, the parental reports, people don't like to talk about this, but your normal average parent gets kind of frustrated with a baby that cries a lot. And this was a Dutch study, but uh, they utilized an anonymous questionnaire and uh, to find out what parents were doing in response. And at infants one month of age, 2% admitted to taking detrimental action, which is what's in the next bullet. Uh, at six months of age, 6% of the parents admitted that, and that was smothering, slapping, or shaking the infant. I mean, this was just, this wasn't a high-risk group. This was a, an anonymous survey uh, of a population. So um, that's kind of scary. And then we have the confession studies. And if you want a very chilling account, look at the Adams Bomb paper, which I think is referenced in one of the slides or in the reference list. But Adams Bomb, um, in particular, I, I think is chilling. And what it tells us is there's a, actually a positive feedback loop for shaking slapping 
slamming or throwing your infant. It works. Um, many of these infants, when they're crying and you know, they get shaken, slammed, or thrown, or all three, they get quiet. And some of them then get better after a few days. They start eating again. And so some of them present late with uh, non-acute findings. Um, but this works. And the average number of times that somebody had done this to the infant was 10 times. So the infant distress study, very similar to the um, sentinel injury study. We basically wanted to know, do parents of abused infants report infant distress at a higher rate than those parents of infants where abuse had been considered and ruled out? The methods were very similar. Um, we excluded that question mark, that middle population for this study. Um, and we, we did chart reviews, and again, this was a, um, a different medical student so, um, who worked with me on this, like, uh, lots of chart reviews. Um, and these, we, we got the history of infant distress, and we defined that broadly, but we also asked some questions that I wish we had asked in the first sentinel injury study. And that was, is there any history of a fall? and um, a remote fall. So if a kid comes in with a broken arm and they supposedly just fell off the bed, which I will tell you is somewhat implausible unless you have unusual circumstances regardless. So long bone fractures are not expected after short falls from sofas or beds in general. Um, but if they came in with that fall, we didn't count that fall. We were looking at remote history of fall before the precipitating event. We were also asking more broadly about injuries. And so we wanted to know scratches. Were, were there any, um, any bumps, any, um, anything, blood anywhere in the nose, uh, red marks, swelling? We were looking more broadly. And then, of course, indicators of infant distress, and we cast that net very broadly. And then we were also looking, and we usually ask about this, is when the baby is crying, what do you do to console the baby? And so that was usually present in the chart. And the results were um, the, the, between the abuse, non-abuse categories, they were the, essentially the same in terms of gender and age. So what about this remote history of a fall? And this doesn't really surprise me, but uh, abused infants were significantly more likely to have a history of a fall. But if you think about that, if you have abuse going on in a home, you may also have components of neglect, you may have, well, you know, where a baby is being left in, on a sofa or an inappropriate sleep setting or not being attended to while siblings are around, pulled off of beds, etc. So this didn't, wasn't surprising, but I think it's interesting. Uh, you'll note the non-abuse clearly is not zero. It was still significant. So even if parents don't tell you about a fall, it, it's common. And a lot of times caregivers don't report a fall because they're embarrassed that it happened. A momentary lapse. So what about sentinel injuries? We actually looked at this again, defining sentinel injuries the same way as we had in the previous study. And 30% of, of these uh, seriously abused infants had a sentinel injury. Um, none of the non-abused uh, infants had a, a previous history of sentinel injury. There was a little bit overlap between the two study populations. Um, and there was, was no issue of circular reasoning. 
So what about these other injuries? And this was really interesting to me. And so uh, the examples you can see here, I've listed what they were uh, in the abuse group, um, included bites, bleeding from the ear, bumps, scratches, red marks, eye swelling, burn. Um, and then in the non-abused uh, were primarily scratches, which we're all familiar with. Babies scratch their own face with their fingernails and sometimes interaction with other children. So the abused infants were actually much more likely to have a history of a non-sentinel injury. injury. I know that's um, kind of a little awkward, uh, but they were significantly more likely. Um, and then to cut to the purpose of the study was this, and that was that a, a history of infant distress was much more common in abused versus non-abused infants, and that was really quite significant. Lynn, in this study, were you able to separate distress that was occurring from, because anyone who has an injury is going to be more irritable. That's right. And was it a injury that had already right. occurred that was causing so, it to be, or is it just a temperament? Shalene, that, that's an impossible answer, um, and, I, and, and it's, you'll get, I haven't gotten to my limitation slide, but that was part of the problem, because those babies, even if they'd had a sentinel injury, or, you know, I will argue that all of these babies who are abused have neurodevelopmental trauma, and they may have decreased ability for that self-regulation. So you could say which came first, the fussiness or the crying, the fussiness or the abuse, and it's it's absolutely, as far as I know, impossible to tease out. But it's a great question, uh, and you're absolutely right. We don't know. Um, and then the if you look um, at by age, it was um, for those who were abused. Um, um, those with no infant distress had were somewhat older, um, and I'm I don't know uh, the reason for this, um, but it's I think somewhat interesting, and I I I don't have a good explanation. Uh, we haven't published this, and we're planning on going back and looking at to see if we could pull this out and figure out why that was. Uh, we suspect it came to light because of other reasons other than um, like a sentinel injury or anything like that. So interestingly, the coping strategies, oh my goodness, parents have lots of uh, tools in their tool chest. There were lots of coping strategies. I'm sure most of us have heard of most of these. Um, the next slide is actually the over-the-counter remedy, remedies, which was, I think, also interesting. And there were a lot of these. So these were what parents were going out and buying, and so maybe another opportunity is to educate pharmacists, because I'm sure some of these parents are asking the pharmacist of what would be good for my crying infant, and so is there an opportunity there? Um, I think there, there probably is, and I think broadly our society should uh, better understand, just in general, uh, how to handle crying and to know that crying is a normal developmental stage, that's the baby learning how to self-regulate, um, and that if any negative feelings arise, what to do and how to sue the baby. At our hospital, we're implementing period of purple uh, crying, but you, there are lots of different paradigms that you can use. I think I've talked about that. Uh, the study limitations, uh, there you go. Um, we don't 
know um, if the, I mean, clearly the abuse causes infant distress. And so what's coming first here, I don't know. And you get into the neurodevelopmental issue as well. Uh, these were retrospective. Um, we could have under and over reporting. I, I, you know, I think I, th this is really hard research to get through an IRB and pretty much we're looking at all only cases that came to our team because of a concern of abuse. Um, because if you do this in a well um, a population, you'd have to have some sort of waiver. And I don't know that ethically I would be able to do that. So approaches to prevention, um, I mentioned period of purple crying, the newest version of period of purple, and I think I met a gal uh, sitting next to me last night, Deb, who was um, injury prevention and, and implementing, I think, period of purple crying, but there are other interventions. This is a universal um, prevention tool that's um, been shown. There's some evidence basis. In a large CDC-sponsored study in North Carolina, it was shown to reduce calls to the nurse on call uh, for infant crying. Does it reduce abusive head trauma? Does it reduce other types of abuse um, in infants? We don't know yet. Um, so anyway, I uh, would suggest that as far as secondary prevention of just uh, targeting high risk, think about those kids who are coming into your clinic or into your ED with frustration around crying or infant distress. And I mean, these are kids, these are parents I would think about having a conversation with about do you need respite, is, you know, what's going on, making sure you're screening for IPV routinely, I would say in all your population, but particularly in these high-risk cases, talking about um, strategies to soothe and normalizing crying from a developmental perspective. And then, of course, tertiary uh, prevention is really the sentinel injury where the child's already been abused, but you're trying to prevent the escalation. And in a sense, that's really kind of secondary uh, prevention if you think about abusive head trauma prevention. So the key points, ask about sentinel injuries. If you're in critical care, if you're in the ED, and you have a kid who fell from the sofa or fell from the bed and has a skull fracture, that's an ambiguous and indeterminate finding generally. It could be from abuse. It can be from a shortfall. It's not super common, but it can be. And so screening, talking with them. You know, if it's a six-month-old and you ask the mom, have you ever seen a bruise? And she describes that the baby got bruised from the pacifier a month ago, um, that her daycare reported it, I would be very serious about at least doing a skeletal and considering a report. So it's not that sentinel injuries or the infant distress will give you definite, is this abuse or not abuse, but it will help you with decision making and I think help prevent more serious cases. So pay attention to these minor in injuries. I didn't spend time on it, but one of the other sentinel injuries are tears of the labial or lingual frena, uh, where a, a caregiver has gotten very frustrated with the baby and rammed something in the mouth, a finger, a spoon, a bottle, what have you common, common accidental injury in children who are able to toddle around. But in a pre-cruising infant, it is abuse until proven otherwise, unless it's a child pulled out of an unrestrained motor vehicle crash or something where you have like a, a you know it, it was a serious trauma. And I think I've mentioned the rest, uh, including a, a protocol-based screening. 
So I want to acknowledge uh, the med students, <coughs> excuse me, who I worked with, uh, also quantitative health sciences who helped us with data analysis. They're part of the medical college. Um, the uh, Medical College of Wisconsin funded some of this. I'm a member of the Injury Research Center at the Medical College. Also, our Children's Trust Fund, which has rebranded itself to the Child Abuse and Neglect Prevention Board, um, uh, funded part of this. And the CAP Fund, which is Children's Hospital of Wisconsin's Prevention Fund, funded part of this. And so a lot of good people helped with this. I also want to thank uh, Dr. Leventhal, um, who is at Yale, but he was a, an academic member to me in trying to uh, get these four sub-studies combined and then eventually published. You have my reference list, and I have um, a few minutes, yay, for questions. It's the green. Oh, oh I'm calling, okay. I turn it to Dr. Loud. Hello, thank you very much for um, raising all of our awareness about some of these things. Um, I'm curious about some of your um, sort of recommendations about sort of interventions or what we can do that seemed a lot focused on the educational piece. And I wonder about um, sort of two things. One is thinking about on the primary prevention level um, and thinking about sort of additional resources. Like I think, I think what parents need is help. I mean, I had a colicky baby. I actually get how people can do things that seem unfathomable. So, and thinking about sort of additional support or resources sure. at that level. And then at the tertiary prevention level, I think one of the challenges with cognitive bias is it's hard to get out of your own cognitive bias. So thinking about sort of like, um, involving social work and, um, and both for the primary prevention and sort of later about um, even just ask a colleague. You know, for us, we have a nice, mm -hmm. you know, walk back and, hey, what do you guys think? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I think a brew should be a trigger to say, you know, hey, I need to get someone else's opinion, too. I, I, or like you said, follow a protocol. But involving right. more minds, I think, sometimes can get you out of your own bias. So I, I think it's a small enough room. Hopefully everyone could hear those questions. It's, okay. So I totally, great questions, great comments. Totally agree. So as far as when I say protocol-based screening, it's still even though our emergency department has heard about sentinel injuries probably more than they want to, uh, we circle back whenever there's one that's missed because we do a review of all the, um, any of these that come through our ED, we review, we write a note, and also contact the provider, get the kid back, do the screening that should have been done. So there's a feedback uh, going back to the ED, but I would encourage you to use protocol-based screening because we're human, and I feel it. I've, I'm sure everyone in this room feels it when you're face-to-face -face with somebody who seems nice or is articulate or you've known for years or whatever. You fall into your own biases, and you need to avoid that. And unless you have a single bruise over the forehead of an infant who can sit, and mom can tell you at 2 o'clock yesterday she fell over and bumped her head on the jack-in-the-box jack and there was a goose egg, I mean, you have a clear, discreet history over a bony prominence. Abuse is at the top of your differential in a pre-cruising infant. And so I would encourage you not just to contact a colleague, because the colleague is going to be troubled possibly with the same biases, but I would encourage you to use the protocol-based screening. Um, and I imagine you have some guidelines at your institution for what that should be. In regard to other evidence-based primary prevention, there are some wonderful um, programs out there, and you're absolutely right. Supporting these families, making them stronger is a key part of that, and helping them be better parents. 
almost all parents, even when they're abusing a child, they want the best for the child. Most of these are not sadistic, horrible people. They're good people who have maybe uh, not had this modeled for them or don't have parenting skills or have substance abuse or, you know, the list goes on. So um, the triple P programs or positive um, kind of parenting programs, home visiting programs, parents as teachers, those kind of programs, they are evidence-based and they're highly effective. And there are some models like the SEEK model. They're actually, um, there's some good evidence base for primary care settings in both pediatrics and family medicine for screening for social determinants of health, but more specifically around abuse. So you make a great point. Thank you. Dr. Tyler Michelle. Hi, thank you so much for your talk. Yeah. I was wondering, um, because you alluded to and you spoke numerous times about it's often when the mother is going back to work. If in your research you found in other countries where maternity leave tends to be a little longer, past the you know the period of purple crying, if the abuse rates are different or lower or anything like that. So it's like comparing apples to oranges. So that question, because how places to find abuse, how they find abuse, so do they have mandated reporting? I mean, you get into kind of all of that, but it's interesting you bring that up because paid parental leave is one of the hot new topics uh, that well, you're likely going to see some, some um, studies on over the next few years about whether it makes a difference. I would add to that, and it's more than just paid parental leave, it's high quality daycare that's licensed because a lot of these moms who are having to go back to work because that's the only way that they can keep at least some of their financial re support coming in who have to go back to work you look at inner city quality of daycare and i i can tell you in milwaukee the the choices are slim to none and so you you see mothers putting kids back and what they they're trying to make good decisions but it may be who their best friend recommended because their best friend has had good luck and it may be unlicensed and and you know those decisions so high quality daycare i think is also another strategy dr morris um thank you for your talk it was sure um, the only addition i would put in is that for the under six month olds i would advocate mri instead of ct because of the radiation involved. yeah and um, there's been lots of reports mm -hmm. about setting up children for cancers and yeah. So thank you for that. I couldn't include everything, Dr. Moss, but, but it's part of my bigger lecture. Um, but the risk really, if you have a sentinel injury and you're only screened, and we only do it under six months of age, I uh, had CT, but if it's non-acute, if, if say the child is being brought into the hospital for some reason, we go to MRI, not head CT. But right now, the standard of care, until we can get uh, quick head CTs and hopefully quick MRIs, uh, the standard of care is a head CT, and that's best done at a children's hospital where they can use uh, as low as reasonably achievable levels of radiation if you have to do a head CT. And then an MRI, we totally agree with you. Uh, when we have that option, that's what we do as well. Thank you. Yeah. The, the quick brain MRI is not good. You'll miss findings. Yep. It'll detect a subdural. Um, small, small <laughs> subarachnoids, small subdurals, and um, you lose the 3D reconstruction. Anyway, there are some problems. <laughs> yep. 
so we don't recommend the, qu the quick MRI is great for following these kids, like in our neurosurgery clinic, that's where we see it used, but not as, as an initial screen. So, but we do here, we, we preferentially do MRIs um, yeah. when the child's stable. Yep. Um, but full MRI, not a I wanted to add to that MRI. We're also, um, because of experience by Mark Diaz and others, that we're doing whole spine, not just cervical spine. All of ours are getting whole spine MRI at this point, and we're also doing a venogram. Um, so even if I'm just mentioning it, um, because I, and um, we have some uh, research that will hopefully be published within the next year by my colleague, Dr. Rabbit. Um, where uh, the rate of return on whole spine is really quite remarkable. It's another occult injury that we were not looking for. Actually, I have a couple questions, but I'll try to make We have two minutes, maybe. <laughs> so, again, thank you, not just for bringing that research to us, but for doing it, because it's not easy research. Um, one quick one, uh, are you familiar with the app that I've recently just seen and haven't explored too much, uh, Child Protector, which is both yeah. you know, for primary care providers, but also for um, other disciplines. You know, if, if you see this, then contact your local team or do this. Um, yeah. And so I was going to ask if you had experience with So that. Jim Anderst and colleagues out of Children's Mercy in Kansas City um, have an app called the Child Protector. It's a little app icon as a handprint. Um, so you may see that. And I, um, I think it has potential value. Uh, I guess I do have some concerns uh, because I, I think a uh, little information is sometimes worse. I mean, I would rather that they just be calling a knowledgeable medical provider and asking what to do because we really, I mean, we use protocol-based screening, but sometimes the child needs more, needs more urgent, or there are a lot of factors. Or sometimes you'll see places that will do a head CT at an outside hospital that uses a lot of radiation. And instead, it's better if there's a concern to bring to a children's hospital. Anyway, I think there's potential good and bad. And then in terms of protocols, I apologize, our protocols have kind of gotten hung up in the change of systems here. And so we do have one that we feel will be actually interactive and easier to use, but we haven't gotten it um, completely down pat and posted. It's modeled somewhat after the, the um, Boston, or the Mass General one where uh, it's an interactive website. Oh, nice. So stay tuned for that, please. Um, nice. My only other comment being about distressed infants, that I think sometimes it may not be a child who's been injured, but, but that serve and return between the mm -hmm. parent and child is broken. It's disrupted. So, so the mm -hmm. child cries more. And so there again, those more broad interventions, whether it's paid parental leave, family nurse partnership, which we have in Vermont, but not consistently in mm -hmm. New Hampshire. Um, those evidence-based things that the CDC has on their um, couple of mm -hmm. web pages are things that we need to think about if we're really wanting to make a dent here. Totally agree with you um, about that. I agree. And then I guess the, I also help. I'm a colleague of my risk management department. They like us a lot. And so when you do implement um, I, uh, guidelines, I would call them guidelines um, because um, there is some, yeah, and I know, but I think I'll, I've been calling them protocol based screening just because I want people to follow them. But you title them guidelines. That's right. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Dr. <laughs> Thank you. In addition to the things that you said, I was wondering if you had experience with, you know, we had this tragic experience here in Vermont of a case where he was murdered. Are, is anything coming back that people are actually afraid? Many of us not only threatening our physical, but also you mean the initial primary care primary care are they afraid that. uh, so that's a really good question she is worried about her personal safety and she wanted a screen up so that the defendant couldn't see her and but you know what? No. They're not targeting you. If they're going to be mad, really, about you. In court, when I was testifying about child abuse, and I was walking out during a break, my
list of that. About losing patients. Oh, yes, practice. that was absolutely. Yeah. And if you look at the research by Emily Flaherty out of Chicago and Risa Jones, um, that's a huge reason why primary care doesn't report mm -hmm. is because it can, I don't think it has to, disrupt that relationship. So yeah. we have some scripts or suggested script for how to give that bad news to a family that in general will, uh, I think, salvage that relationship, at least it does in most of our cases. Um, it kind of involves throwing my team under the bus, but they're going to be mad at me anyway. <laughs> well, that's, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah, it goes with the <laughs> it comes with a, I Listen, I did intensive care for 40 years. So I'm used know. to getting thrown yeah, under the bus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I had a question for you. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So I'm Hillary. I'm one of the recently graduated residents. And Hi. one of the things that I was thinking about, so I had a couple of cases where I wanted to find a bruise, like, you know, so I have a, a, a pre-mobile child who's had, you know, I'm seeing them for maybe the second or third time mm -hmm. they've fallen off the bed or, you know, fallen off the step or something like this. And I can't find anything. There are some other social respects. I can't find anything. So I can't really, you know, talk to some folks. I can't justify anything. And I just wonder what your, what your thoughts are on that. Cause like if I, if I had something that I could, you know, like, you know, stick and justify, you know, a work on justifying and denies and yeah. Yeah. I can't, I can't get anything. I'm poking, I'm prodding. I'm wanting something. Do you have access to any social workers, probably clinic? Yeah. We have social workers in our clinic. So does the mom, can the mom identify any of her struggles, anything that's, because you can do just kind of a social determinants of health screen of what your issues are, or acknowledge you seem, you seem stressed today, or whatever it is that you pick up on, and start there and see if she will at least disclose something where you can start linking her into services. I mean, it's kind of bread and butter pediatrics, because I think all of us kind of are part social workers. Yeah, yeah. But that's the way. I would do it. Some people will um, do heightened vigilance as far as bringing the child back with increased periodicity, but I think that, you know, then you run the risk, you're not going to get paid for the visit. But sometimes for peace of mind, that's okay. You can just do check-ins with the mom. If, you know, you seem stressed. And I, if it's okay with you, I'd like to give you a call in a couple of weeks just to check in. Would that be okay? You know, those kinds of things I would recommend. Yeah, yeah. And those are the kinds of things we did. I'm just there you go. curious. Yeah. I, like I, I, want, I wish I was imagining so that have something to hang my yeah. hat on. But. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Very yeah, nice meeting you. Thank you so much. I'm a general pediatrician. I'm now retired. I'm not retired. I'm not retired. I was a public resident of John Oh, you were? I love John. Oh, John is fun. And so Kelly Hodges, who's one of our pediatricians, and she's actually the co-medical director of the foster care medical home in Wisconsin, came out of John's program. Uh, but she's a Wisconsin native. But I love John. John is just like, and, and he really was so helpful to me as I was trying to figure out what to do with the sentinel injury, because it started out as four sub-studies. He, anyway, he helped me a lot. Well, this is so practical. And he's so smart. I think just coining the term sentinel injury was a brilliant Well, yes. And, yeah. and other people have said that, and it was, it was intentional, because I'm interested.